You're going to remember this every day for the rest of your life. If you want to get to a goal, if you want to get to your dream, you got to focus on all the little steps. You have to put in your time. You have to be patient and you have to enjoy the process. Whatever you're doing now, whatever you want to be great at, whatever you want to be special at, I'm sure you you maybe already be good at it, but to be extraordinary, you have to do extra. I firmly believe that we are all here for a very specific reason to do something truly extraordinary. But what are you going to do to get there? Welcome to the Magna Method Podcast, and I am very fortunate to sit down today with former Navy Commander Michael Abersoff. Listen, I'm a bit uh, nervous myself sitting down with this gentleman because he has so many years serving this country. Uh, I've heard nothing but the most positive things. He is a great leader, a great man, and a uh, for me, it's uh, sitting down with a leader like Mike is something very, very special. I just want to get right into it. And Mike, please, first, thanks for being on the show. It's really, my pleasure. This is terrific. I'm really excited. Everyone who tunes into the Magna Method podcast knows how much respect I have for the United States military. And Mike being such a uh, influential leader for the military community, this is going to be something else. So, Mike, please tell us uh, how you got your start in the United States Navy, where you're from, and how you got your start. I'm from Altoona, Pennsylvania, and I'm the only one of seven children who did not go to Penn State. And I was an offensive lineman, and my goal was to play for Joe Pa, but I wasn't good enough. Uh, I had football scholarships to Temple, Duke, William & Mary, West Virginia, and all the service academies. And I visited uh, the Naval Academy in Annapolis, and I realized I loved the water. So I chose the Naval Academy because um, I loved the water. And uh, I played football for uh, three of the four years. I didn't play my last year because I needed to graduate. Of course. And uh, the time constraints on athletes at the service academies are just absolutely incredible. But uh, graduated in 1982 and then worked my way up uh, through the Navy, uh, finally getting command of a guided missile destroyer, uh, USS Penfold. So it sounds like, you know, you knew exactly what you wanted to do. And as we talk on the Mega Method podcast often with my guests, a lot of people don't realize what they want to do at a young age. And you kind of knew what your calling was. Is that correct? You know what? Coming up through the ranks was extraordinarily tough. And there were many days when I wanted to quit, but I didn't know what I could do better. So I stayed until I found something better to do. <laughs> Understood. But it was... It was a lot of sacrifice. Uh, my first eight Christmases in the Navy uh, was spent either at sea or on duty. I've spent um, six six-month deployments to the Middle East, not counting uh, all the time you spend at sea preparing to uh, to be operational uh, wherever you're called upon. So it's quite a sacrifice, a lot of time away from home. But uh, I've got no regrets, and it was a good run. Sounds like an amazing run, Mike. We love, uh, when I say we, the Mega Method community, discussing, talking, getting tips, getting information about leadership, leadership lessons, life lessons that, you know, will cross over to uh, creating better leaders. Tell us about your experience early on in the United States Navy and what you learned from some of the people you respect very much and how you came to be the leader that you are today. Because Mike gives speeches all over the country. He's a sought-after uh speaker about all things touching on many topics and we can hit on that more later but tell us about your experience because all these life experiences and military experiences are molding you to be the person you are today and then when you got uh, command of a ship so what were you noticing as a young uh would you say uh midshipman no a young uh, division officer division officer head. thank you thank you so uh, probably the most impactful event of my life other than getting command of a, of a destroyer. It was the 2nd of August, 1990, uh, 4.30 in the morning. I was on, stationed on a ship in the northern Persian Gulf when Saddam invaded Kuwait. There was not another U.S. ship within 150 miles of us. And at 4.30 that morning, we detected 21 unknown fighters coming directly at our ship. And we sound the general quarters alarm, and I, I get to my radar screen. I'm looking at these 21 fighters. I'm thinking we'll be able to shoot down many of them, but I gave us only a 50% chance of being able to shoot down all 21. 
And the first thought that went through my mind that morning was my life insurance is paid up and my will is up to date. I'm sure. Uh, there was nobody there. We had no backup. Uh, we were out there on point by ourselves. And we tracked these fighters for several minutes. And just as we were getting ready to fire the first missile at them, they hung a right turn into Saudi Arabia. And we later found out it was the Kuwaiti Air Force fleeing Kuwait that morning. But for several minutes, we thought we were the ones who were under attack. And after the excitement died down, I started thinking, I don't like a 50% chance of survival. What is it that we could have or should have been doing while we had the chance to put ourselves in a position to control our own destiny? And that's what's at stake. I bet you all the Magnum Method uh, listeners want to be in a position to control their own destiny. And that morning, the ship I was stationed on was not. And so I thought about the previous year, the year we were supposed to have been spending uh, to prepare ourselves. And we, we didn't push ourselves. Uh, we didn't go the extra mile. We didn't work together as a team. We complained about our shipmates instead of figuring out a way to make them stronger. And everything that was keeping us from being in control that morning was entirely self-inflicted. And that day, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I made a resolution to myself, if I'm ever given the opportunity to lead people again, I'm not going to squander it. Because you never know when you might not get a second chance. Right. So you started making changes immediately. Immediately. And what, you know, I think there's nothing more powerful or it's one of the most powerful things, morale. And you started to change the morale of your men and of the entire uh, ship. How do you do things like that? And how do you make impactful change immediately and have people, I call it the buy-in. How do you get people to buy in? So the other big event of my career was the day I took command of USS Benfold. And it wasn't the worst ship in the Pacific Fleet, but it had a lot of problems. It was near the bottom, you know, probably four or five from the bottom in performance. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the highest accident rates, uh, the highest turnover rate. And the, at the change of command ceremony, uh, there were 300 people in attendance. When my predecessor was leaving the ship for the final time with his parents and his wife and his kids, and when his departure was announced on the public address system, my new crew stood and cheered at the fact that he was leaving. Oh, no. And to my knowledge, that had never happened in the history of the Navy. Wow. And the first thought that went through my mind was, what do I have to do to keep that from happening to me two years from now when right. I leave this ship? And the second thought that went through my mind was, I'm not here to be liked. Right. My role is to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, I realized that I can't ask them to change and improve if I'm not willing to change and improve myself. So change started with me. And I went from a command and control top down, telling people what to do and how to do it, to one where uh, I tried to communicate to the crew why what they were doing was in their best interest. I tried to give them the best training that I could. And I did something that had never been done, to my knowledge, in the history of the Navy. I interviewed every sailor on the ship, all 310 of them. Wow. I got to know their names, their spouses' names, their children's name, their hometown, their favorite sports team, what motivated them, what their career goals were. And in these interviews, I turned military hierarchy upside down. And I said, I don't care what your age is. I don't care what your rank is. I don't care how long you've been here. You can come to work every day and challenge 242 years worth of rules and regulations, customs and traditions, policies and procedures. And if you have an idea how to do something better on this ship, I want to hear from you. And our goal is to improve this ship 1% a day. We're not going to radically change the ship, but we're going to improve 1% a day and we're gonna be 1% better tomorrow than we were today. So it was that constant improvement and constantly pushing ourselves to tweak every aspect of how we did things. And at the end of the day, it was the crew who turned their own ship around, but it started with me turning myself around and becoming um, a more enlightened leader in, in creating a culture where I would want my own family members to, to come be a part. Right. And that's what a lot of people in business don't understand. You know, would you want your spouse or your son or daughter to come work for you? And if you're proud, you're on the right track. If you're embarrassed, fix it. And what we tried to do on the ship was to fix everything that we were embarrassed about. And 
when you focus on the culture that people want to be a part of, then they start taking personal responsibility for the results. And I'll never forget in one of the early interviews, and I didn't start out knowing how to interview. I had to grow into the role. One sailor asked me how to do his job. And I'm just thinking, you know, you're the technician. I can't tell you how to do your job. And I said, well, what do you think? And he said, nobody's ever asked me to think before. And I said, well, I'm asking you to think. If this was yours, how would you do this? And he said, well, if this was mine, this is how I'd do it. And then I said, it's your ship, do it. And that became the title of my book, It's Your Ship. Uh, because, you know, I would tell my sailors, you own this just as much as, as I do, take action. And I was in the, I, I now do about 100 speeches a year. And six months ago, I was in a speech and the CEO was pointing his finger at everybody in the room and said, you're accountable for the results. And I went back and thought about my two years in command of the ship. And in that two years, I never once told a sailor they were accountable for the results. What I focused on was empowering them. And when people feel empowered, that's when they start taking accountability and feeling responsible for the results. Mm -hmm. And if people aren't empowered, if you just tell them what to do, they become order takers. And order takers don't accept personal responsibility. Right. And I think what we got to in that ship was a culture where the sailors felt personally responsible for the collective results. They collaborated better. They worked together better as a team. And in 15 months, we went from being near the bottom in performance to being awarded the Spokane Trophy. That's right. It was an award started in 1908 by President Theodore Roosevelt and given annually to the best ship in the Pacific Fleet. An incredible feat, probably the first time it's ever happened where a ship went from maybe one of the worst or if not the worst in the fleet to It's the tough to do. I, I know of no example where that happened before. But in years three and four after I left the ship, Benfold got the award for best ship in the entire Navy. Wow. So that to me is more important than the Spokane Trophy because it meant that what we created was sustainable mm -hmm. uh, for the long mm -hmm. term. And it also showed that it wasn't about me. Uh, it was about, you know, 310 people taking collective ownership and responsibility. It's, it's an incredible feat. So congrats on that. It's really special. Okay. Um, you know, I, I compare uh, most things to sports because of my background. And, you know, it's kind of like when the coach leaves, the year after he leaves, his recruits, his team, or the team that he had previously coached wins the national championship. And yeah, it's his guys and or the coach says, you know what? The coach that was here before me didn't recruit very well, but the guy wins the national championship with the same guys. Well, that means that, as you said, it's not only sustainable, but they're they take great pride in it and they want to carry it out and make it sustain, make it long lasting. You know, how is it? How do you you know, I find with what I do and of course, Mike's one of our awesome members at Anatomy in Miami Beach, Florida. So thank you for that as well. Um, you know, we have a great team there. Uh, I believe they're all very special. And I I consider them all like family, but that's me. And I know not everyone can do that. And and that's, you know, people say it's business, but whenever it's just business, you have a real problem. Because business is never just business. There's more to it than that. Because when people stay late and they work a lot of hours and they miss times with their families, uh, their actual families, immediate family, now it gets personal because, you know, you don't do it work long hours because you have to. You do it because you love what you do. I find that most of the time. Well, and you care. Yeah, thank you. And, and you care. if you didn't care, um, they wouldn't stay late. When I walk through your front door, that person behind the front desk, and I, I travel a lot, so I'm there infrequently. They know my right. name. Right. And so they don't have to know my name, but it's a nice touch. And it means that they care enough to provide that. And I know the names of all your trainers, even though I don't train with them. And it's, it is like a family atmosphere yeah, as opposed to another impersonal place. Mm -hmm. And so it all stems because you care and you create a great climate and that causes them to care and take greater pride in themselves 
and that's why you have a great clientele. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for that. Coming from you, that's a huge compliment, so thank you. It's stuff that I notice. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you notice way more than that, <laughs> but thank you for noticing that. By the way, I'm also looking for trash on the deck and cleanliness, which oh, there oh, is yeah. none, because when I took command of the ship, it was one of the filthiest ships I'd ever seen in the Navy. And if people walk past stuff that's not right and make no effort to fix it, it means they don't take ownership. And so when I would walk down the passageways, if I saw trash on the deck, I'd bend over and pick it up. I wouldn't call a, you know, a sailor. I would pick it up myself. Oh, yeah. And the sailors would see me picking up trash. And it's like I may be the only captain in the Navy who ever picked up trash before. Really? But pretty soon it stopped being put there. And then start upping the standards and the expectations oh, yeah. because they watch you. And so um, those are things that I notice when I walk into any establishment sure. is those little things. Are the lights burning bright? Is there trash on the deck? Are people looking in the eye? Mm -hmm. uh, are they smiling? Um, and that tells me the culture of the organization. Oh, that's... I'm sure you don't miss too much detail. I'll start with that. But um, I'm going to make this a mandatory podcast for all of my staff because when I say, you know, it's important to look people in the eye, they say, yeah, that's Mark being Mark, or, you know, I'm, I'm sure you believe that, but I don't think they understand what happens when you look someone in the eye. And we're not talking about a weird thing. We're talking about a personal connection thing exactly. and a respect thing. So I used to tell my sailors, if you see a visitor come on board this ship, walk up to them, look them in the eye, shake their hand, and say, welcome to the best damn ship in the Navy. And when we started it, we weren't the best ship. But what I wanted them to realize is no one is keeping us from being the best except ourselves. We are in competition with nobody else. That's interesting. So you know what they do at Anatomy starting right now? Welcome to the best gym in America. In the world. In the world. In the world. In the world. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for that. And, and then watch your patrons' eyes light up and a smile come to their face. I love it. I love it. So how do you... You know, as I mean, that's a great example right there. You kind of answered my next question. How do you build uh, its trust? But they see you see you doing it, and you're leading by example. Of course, we've heard that before. But how? What are some other ways you build trust for them to get that buy-in? What types of other things are you doing? Please. So let me tell you the um, the turning event on the ship. It was two months after I took command, and it was time for us to deploy to the Persian Gulf. And we left on a Friday, and the first seven days were spent doing a major exercise designed to increase our ability to defend ourselves. And we were with two other ships, the Harry W. Hill, the USS Gary. The Admiral was embarked on Harry W. Hill conducting this exercise. And the plan was for the exercise to be over the following Friday afternoon at 5 p.m., at which point we would enter Pearl Harbor and spend the night on Waikiki. Well, instead of being over at 5 p.m. that afternoon, the exercise was unexpectedly over at 9 a.m. We had achieved all the objectives. The Admiral declared it a success. And we're sitting out there steaming in circles, wasting fuel, waiting for 5 o'clock to roll around. And I'm thinking, this is stupid. Why don't we all go in and go to the beach early? And the way we enter port in the Navy is by the data rank of the senior officer on each ship. The Admiral was on Harry W. Hill. They were to go in first. I was the youngest commanding officer at the time at age 36 in the most junior by data rank. We would always go in last. So I called the captain of the Harry W. Hill and I said, why don't you ask the Admiral to go in early? He said, I can't, I've got an engineering problem. I gotta stay out and fix it. And I'm talking to him on an encrypted satellite voice radio that any sailor on any of the three ships can punch in the button and listen to the conversation. I called the captain of the second ship, who was a fire breather, command and control butthead, and he excoriated me on the radio in front of everybody to hear, do not challenge the plan. It was a public humiliation. Wow. And so I decided, you know what? I'm gonna to go to the Admiral directly. Wow. So I called him directly. I'm in my cabin on the ship. My hand is literally shaking as I'm calling him. And he had been listening to the conversation and he was indignant that I would go directly to him. And he said, why should I grant Benfold something I'm not granting the other two ships? I said, well, sir, the exercise is over early. We're steaming in circles, wasting fuel. I've got a piece of broken equipment I can only fix in port. And I said, reason number three, I want to put my crew on the beach early in Waikiki today. Because that's why sailors join the Navy, see the world. Right. And 
To my utter amazement, he said, permission granted. I was two decks above the operations. You, you were shocked? I was shocked. Okay. I was two decks above the operations center where 30 sailors were on watch. When he said permission granted, I could hear cheering through two <laughs> decks of steel. So we tie up at 1015, cruise off the ship on their way to Waikiki. Next day, we get underway to continue our transit. And the first sailor coming up for his interview that day came in and said, you know, Captain, it seems to us, the crew, that you don't care if you ever get promoted again. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, what you did for us yesterday, he said, you had nothing to gain. You did it for us. We want you to know we got your back. And that was the day that the crew started to trust me. And when your people wow. trust you, when they got your back, it's, there's nothing that you can't do. And that was the turning point on the ship, whereby if I said, this is why we have these high standards, the crew trusted me and they say, we buy into it. Mm. I can assure, I mean, that's a very special moment. Cause that's a connection moment that most people don't see because your job as the leader is actually a very thankless job. There's not a lot of people thanking you because you're at the top. So your men don't really get to thank you other than the moments like that, correct? Correct, but it's also a very stressful job. Benfold is the same class of ship that uh, the two destroyers had accidents on this summer. Understood. The Fitzgerald and the John S. McCain. And what, I, what terrified me was ever having to write the parents of any of my sailors telling them their sons and daughters weren't coming home because we didn't give it our best. So that forced me to up my game to constantly do what-if scenarios so that I could make the training tougher than anything we had ever seen in combat. And so, because that's what I felt I owed my sailors was to come home alive with all 10 fingers and all 10 toes attached. Um, and so everything that we did on the ship wasn't driven to be nice, to be liked, but to produce results and to make us the overwhelming favorite if we ever mm -hmm. get called into combat. Because I'm not playing to come in number two. Oh, you know, I'm playing to win. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is there, do you remember a specific moment when you were trying to motivate? Do you have a lot of, I know there's a chain of command, obviously, but do you ever have a, a, a moment with a uh, someone who's short time in the Navy and you, you directly motivated them? Do you remember a moment like that? Because the officers basically go through you and then the, their job and they carry out the orders. But do you remember a moment like that? That, that Because you're an iconic or, you know, a, a superhero figure to these younger people. Do you remember a specific moment? So um, I had one major racial incident on the ship. And... Um, it was two black guys and two white guys. Any one of the four, if they had just not escalated, would not have escalated to the major strife that it caused. Okay. And to boil it down, if I were to assign more blame, um, probably more blame went to the black sailors than to the white sailors. But the white sailors were punks and, and they... I could see why they had it coming to them. And so we're at captain's mast, and that's our judicial proceedings. And I'm tearing these sailors down. And this one white sailor's name was Brendan. I can't remember his last name right now. And he was a wise ass. And, and I said, Brendan, petty officer, whatever his name was, you're such a punk. You know, if you had just had the maturity, we wouldn't be here today. And so what, at the end of the day, I could have thrown all four of them out of the Navy, but I didn't. Wow. I gave all four of them a chance. And prior to that, Brendan was on his way out of the Navy. Uh, after he got off restriction 60 days later, I'm sitting on my bridge wing chair watching sunset. And he came up to me and said, will you re-enlist me in the Navy? Wow. And I said, two months ago <laughs> when I called you a punk, I said, could you ever imagine you asking me to re-enlist you. He said, not then, but now I do. Wow. And so he stayed in the Navy and we turned the kid around. Well, that's incredible. That's incredible. You know, uh, it's at the moments like that, that no one will ever see uh, some of the most special moments of being a leader. And I definitely don't consider myself a great leader, but I've learned a lot from some, from some very special people. I find there are a lot of managers 
and not enough leaders. And leading by example is all, is one very powerful thing. Uh, doing the right thing when no one's watching is a very difficult thing. And then, you know, trying to live the life. Like, you want your men to live the life like you live the life. Like, the military life. Like, doing the right thing when no one's watching. Did you ever have to reprimand uh, outside of, like, the, uh, something uh, like this fight, this altercation? Was ever a major thing with the entire ship where you had to put the whole ship on a restriction or punish the entire ship? Because I know you're not in the business of being liked. You're in the business of keeping everyone healthy and alive. But any moments like that? That's a tough question. Nobody's ever asked me. So I'm uh, <laughs> checking through my Rolodex here. Um, there are times when um, you have, if you if they don't meet standards, then you have to hold them accountable. And I probably didn't let them go on liberty one day because the ship wasn't clean or something didn't mm -hmm. get done. Uh, but then after that, it never happened again. Right. And so um, if I was, they were performing so well, I could have overlooked it. But then I thought, if they see me loosening the standard, then they might push somewhere else in the future. So if you lay down a, a line in the sand, um, you've got to hold them accountable for it. And um, even if, um, and they, they know that they've got to strive for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm smiling right now because um, in, we were in Dubai in the Middle East. And there was a uh, curfew. Sailors had to be back by midnight. And one of my sailors um, didn't come back at midnight, and we didn't know where he was. His name was Sean Perkins, and he was one of our rescue swimmers. He was in such great shape, and he was such a great sailor. He could have been a SEAL. Okay. I mean, that's how fantastic this kid was. Wow. And I was worried sick. You're in the Middle East, and a sailor doesn't come back. I went to general quarters trying to find this kid. Who knew him? Where was he? It turns out that uh, Sean Perkins had hooked up with a, a, a young lady in Dubai wow. and was out having fun with her, and he came back at 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh -oh. Well, I was like a, a parent who was <laughs> right, right. worried that something had happened to their child, and I have to take Sean Perkins to captain's mast and discipline him for breaking curfew. But my heart wasn't in it because secretly every sailor on the ship wished that they were Sean Perkins <laughs> and would have done the same thing yeah, had the opportunity. Right, right. But um, I had to hold them accountable for, for breaking curfew. But it was probably the one time when my heart wasn't in it That's because, uh, one, I respected him so much, and two, I was, I was happy for him that he was out yeah, there. Everyone's rooting for him secretly. right. right. So with all your years of experience, you're, you know, so many, as we said so many times before, the, the leadership lessons, the leading men, you've now transitioned, you say you do about 100 speeches a week, that's correct. A year. Uh, excuse me, a year, that'd be a lot of speeches. I've a been year. doing it for 17 years. 17 years, and you, a lot of uh, corporations, uh, businesses, CEOs, and I could see like a direct, excuse me, carryover to corporate America. And what types of things do you see... Because the military would, would create a wonderful or strong, positive infrastructure that they could, my business could learn so much from. Um, the Any big business, small business could just learn from these lessons. What types of things do you see lacking that you would like to see more of in these corporations or small businesses? So if you ask me the reasons why companies bring me in. Please. One is... Um, there is no spare talent left in the United States. You know, I, I spoke for a company that does cold storage, you know, freezing and freezers and refrigeration. And these kids put on parkas all day long and work in these refrigerated warehouses. And they pay them 10 bucks an hour. Well, in 2010 and 2012, you know, they had 40, 50% annual turnover. But now they're, and they knew that they could get rid of them because there would be people, you know, standing in line to get their job. But now the labor pool is so tight, um, there aren't people standing in line to get those jobs. And so what businesses are, are just uh, seized with today is um, attracting and more importantly, retaining talent. How you deal with millennials 
because everybody's terrified of dealing with millennials. Oh, yeah. And I don't see it, personally. If you, All they want to do is feel like they're part of the team. They want to know what's in it for them. Mm-hmm. You have to up your game communicating with them. But, you know, my parents' generation complained about me. You know? Right, right. So um, it's normal to complain about the next generation. And corporate America is having a, a seizure over it right now as to how to connect with millennials. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and what I did, the average age of my crew was 23 years old, uh, maintaining a $1.8 billion piece of equipment. And so it's about connecting with young people. But also what's lacking in business today is collaboration and teamwork. And a lot of companies are trying to figure out that collaboration piece. And also how do you create a workforce that's intellectually curious so that they constantly improve every day. Mm-hmm. And that, that became part of our culture was the intellectual curiosity. How can we be better at this? Oh, man. The, you know, I sometimes wish I, I'll get someone on our team every once in a while and I say, I wish I could send you away to a boot camp style retreat. I just wish you could understand how fortunate you are. But as you said before, everyone looks at things so very differently and each person is very different. Within the company uh, or within as when you were a leader and you're in charge of so many men, as as I stated before, there's a hierarchy, there's a uh, pecking order, chain of command, totem pole. How do you encourage creative thinking within uh, your lead and in your men because you know you give the order and then you want them to surprise you with the results you kind of maybe it's less a fair hands off but do you want to hear you know what they have to say as you said before absolutely uh, I always want to hear it so mm-hmm. what I what I resisted doing was telling people how to do things mm-hmm. what I tried to do was to lay out the requirements and I'd say here are the requirements and you don't get a vote on them I'm going to let you figure out how to achieve those requirements and then have them come back and brief me as to what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. Check in on them once in a while. But I can tell you my first 16 years in the Navy was telling people what to do and how to do it. Mm-hmm. My last two was laying out requirements and letting them figure out. And that's when they start taking ownership and accountability for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, the big growth for me was resisting the temptation because of my experience to tell people what the answer is. Right. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Next. What do you think the most important of the three, uh, of these three heads to your, when your ship, is it the mission, the core values or your vision? When you speak to these companies uh, and you're, you're giving your, you're addressing these big businesses. Is it mission, core values, or vision? Because I know you're a military guy. It's like mission at all costs. But core values sometimes tells you complete the mission. And then vision is like what creates the overall end result. Like having the vision or the foresight to for, uh, for to see problems, obstacles, hurdles. How do you see it, Mike? So I can't put one over the other. Um, my ship was named after a guy by the name of Edward Benfold. And Edward Benfold was a medic in the Korean War. And one afternoon, he was tending to two wounded Marines in a foxhole when several enemy soldiers stormed the foxhole throwing grenades into him. And at the age of 21, Edward Benfold became a leader and he picked up those grenades. He stormed the oncoming enemy soldiers, blowing them up, blowing himself up in the process, but saving the lives of those two wounded Marines who are still alive today and who wow. I used to take to sea on his ship every six months or so. And in addition to naming a ship after him, he was also awarded the Medal of Honor. And so what I wanted his crew to do was to take care of his ship with the same honor and integrity and valor with which uh, he sacrificed his life for. Mm -hmm. And I used to say to my crew, make sure Edward Benfold is smiling down upon us today. And the other thing I'd say to him, you never go wrong when you do the right thing. So, you know, how, you know, the how you operate with those values um, is every bit as important as the results. And I had a captain when I was a young lieutenant told me how you get somewhere is more important than getting there. And so he stressed to me, you know, live your life with integrity and, right. and, and with honor and valor. 
So core values were important, but it's also important that if they're if you say they're important, that you've got to live by them. Oh, yeah. And what happens in business today is I see a lot of people near the top who don't um, live by those values, yet they tell their people they need to. And so when there's a mismatch between what you're talking about and and what you're doing, then it erodes your credibility mm-hmm. and the trust that they have in you. Would you say that's the mistake that leaders are making more frequently uh, nowadays? I think that they don't have the self-awareness as to how their actions are being perceived. And so um, what I talk about in my presentations is to have the self-awareness to understand how you're showing up to the people you're trying to influence. Self-assessing. Exactly. Constant. Yeah. I do it to this day. Mm-hmm. And um, well, we talked about before, Mike, that a lot of people aren't. It takes a certain type of person to assess yourself and to be honest with yourself. True. Because we talk about personality types, and I was just talking with someone at Anatomy who specializes in breaking down different personality types. And at Anatomy, if you know anything about the Enneagram personality test, we have a house full of threes. And threes don't like to take criticism, and threes don't aren't as self-aware as you would like them to be. So in regards to them taking a good, honest look at themselves, doesn't usually happen. How do you get people to take an honest look at themselves? Because some people don't have the ability to do that. Do you do 360 reviews? Please tell me. So um, I didn't do this on the ship, but I've left the Navy 16 years ago, and I do this in my consulting work. Is Actually, I did do this in the Navy. Uh, I lifted this idea from the Army, and it's called the After Action Review. And after everything we did on the ship, um, we everybody involved would get together to critique it. And on Benfold, the ground rules were you check your ego at the door. Emotion. You check, um, check your ego at the door. There's no retribution for what gets said. And anybody in the group could respectfully challenge anybody else. In an after action review, the lowest ranking seaman could challenge me. And if that seaman was right, if I was doing something wrong, I'd own it right then and there. I wouldn't make excuses. I'd say, I didn't realize I was doing that. I didn't realize I was causing you to do needless additional work. I'll change. If they were wrong, it meant there was something they didn't understand and it allowed me to have a coachable moment. But what businesses have gone to is a kind of a version of that that they call 360 reviews where your peers um, can tell you what they think of you. And it can be brutally (laughs) eye-opening. I got to prepare myself for this because I know that my staff's listening and they can't wait to do this. So what you should do is put yourself out there. Oh, yeah. And have them review, you know, have an after action review. What are we? So in the interviews, what I would say to my sailors, what do you like most about Benfold? What do you like least? What would you change if you were the captain? And so that's one thing you could ask your threes is what do you like most about anatomy? What do you like least? And what would you change if you could? And then they start owning it more if they know that they're that they've got input. This is genius. I actually heard about the uh, after action review in a book called No Easy Day by Mark Owen. Yep. And you know the book? I, I've heard of the book. I've right. read it. And he um, talked about, so when they're uh, doing um, basically a raid and everyone's on the, on the mic and they're on the walkie-talkie, so to speak, the comms, if you will, he reprimanded one guy and made sure he was prepared to do his job. And they're all Navy SEALs. And he said, look, this is my job in the after action review. Have I ever not done my job? Have I never have I ever not been prepared to do my job? Why did you make it sound like I wasn't ready to do my job? Right? right. So he was in he was embarrassed and you don't need to embarrass me like that. I'm always ready. I'm on SEAL Team Six. Trust me, I'm gonna be ready every time. So it was very interesting because, you know, the leader, Mark Owen, said, You're absolutely right. Uh, that was my mistake, it won't happen again. And he's the leader. Right. And it's very humbling, and it takes a special leader to take a back seat and say, I was wrong, you were right. But when you get a room full of people that can admit when they're wrong, you have a very powerful room. So I recommend you lead off doing it. 
and then they need to own it as well and be open to to not criticism but recommendations from the other trainers how do you get them to walk out of the room and not hate each other you need to take it first okay and that you need to show them that you don't hate them that you appreciate their oh, feedback listen i have as you know you see it i'm sure that they are the hardest working best people uh, at, at what they do and they're good-hearted genuine and there's a lot of camaraderie there oh there is um but that doesn't mean you're perfect because oh. nobody's perfect far from it and so that's what you're striving for mm -hmm. is perfection okay you, realizing that you will never get there but it's being one percent better today than you were yesterday oh yeah each day each day yeah Oof, man, I'm going to have to, this is going to end up being a financial commitment with all the help Mike's given me today. Okay, um, this was a good one I, I was looking forward to. What is the one behavior or trait that you have seen uh, derail more leaders? Ego. Ego. So I was the number two assistant to the Secretary of Defense, William Perry. And I worked every day for 27 months. I did not have one day off Christmas, Thanksgiving. On holidays, we would go visit the troops in the field. No days off. You mean to tell me you worked Sundays? Yep. <laughs> we, weekends. Weekends. Especially weekends. Yeah. Saturdays, we got left early at 5 in the afternoon. And how much sleep are you getting? Um, Except that Saturday night, obviously. So I had a, a secure telephone installed in my home. Okay. And when something would go wrong around the world, the uh, National Military Command Center would call me first. And they'd say, go secure. And the way it works is I have a key in a safe. So it's like 3 in the morning, and you got to get up, open the safe, get the key, put it into the machine. Oh goes. You can't get back to sleep. Uh, after I tell that. you, you have to be wide awake to and do And then that. you have to uh, decide whether to wake the Secretary of Defense over it or not. And it would be nice if every crisis happened in the Eastern time zone, but it doesn't. It happens halfway around the world where it's their day and our night. And um, North Korea was a problem back then. And it was Christmas week. They had shot down one of our helicopters and taken two pilots uh, prisoner. And we worked every day during the day, and then we had to be there at night while the negotiations were going on for the release of these two pilots. Wow. And I don't, I could sleep standing up. I was so tired. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. But um, yeah, every day, every holiday would be spent with troops in the field. And people don't understand um, how tough a job. The two toughest jobs in government today, I think, are Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense. And um, you can't do it for more than four years because it's so uh, physically demanding. Burnout? Not burnout, but actually, it's you have no life. And for 27 months, I had no life. Now, do I want to do it again? No. But do I regret doing it? I loved every minute of right. it. I, I imagine not only uh, do you work 27 months in a row, but... Your, your experience as a person, as a leader in the Navy gets expedited a little bit. It does because I find I get to see everything at a global level. Mm -hmm. And then here's me and my ship down here at sea level. So where I was going with that before I got sidetracked and mm -hmm. working for William Perry, watching him every day for 27 months, um, I saw what a great leader is. And like Bill Belichick, he's not charismatic. He's not outgoing. He's you not a warm, if you, if you don't right. work for him directly. Right, right. But to the outside, he's a curmudgeon. William Perry was very introverted and soft-spoken. Okay. And you would never think of him as a natural-born leader. But he led with a sense of humility. And I came to call his leadership style excellence without arrogance. And the big mistake that people make in business and in in sporting world is letting their ego get the best of them mm -hmm. uh, and having no humility to understand that yeah I may be good but I'm not as good as I can be and that I need to continue to strive to improve it's interesting there's a book called and I've talked about it before in a previous podcast Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday have you read it? I have not you would there's only one good book that I recommend you read it's <laughs> called It's Your Ship <laughs> It's Your Ship is an incredible book everyone should read it sold over a million copies on the New York Times bestseller list oh it's terrific so um, you know basically 
he talks about Rockefeller. And he said, you could probably chalk uh, Rockefeller up as the only person who ever lived who at eight years old said, I'm going to be the richest man in the world. And he went out and did it. And he used to do this drill and people thought he was crazy. At night, he would sit in his den office, whatever you may call it, in a chair. And he would role play with himself. And he would say, I am the richest man in the world. I don't need to do anything else. I've accomplished everything I need to accomplish. And I don't need to help anyone. And then he would stop himself and say, because I'm the richest man in the world, I have an obligation to go help other people. I need to do more philanthropy. I need to help the people who can't help themselves. And I haven't done enough. And he would practice the humility mm. on both sides of it. And he, he said, there's books written, there's articles written that said that side of helping others would always win. And he was far from perfect, but this is something that brought him back down to earth. So he had the self-awareness to know it was something that he needed to work on. Correct. A lot of people don't have that self-awareness. And it's not that they're bad people. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it stems from insecurity. And so that's powerful word. When somebody feels insecure, that's when the ego takes over to show themselves that I'm, I'm a good person. And they're trying to prove themselves. Like I'm, I'm look at all the people I'm helping, uh, or look at my worth or my net worth. Look at what I've done. Look at what I have. When, you know, I find more and more, Mike, that people want to know about you, not who you know, not what you have, not what your net worth is. They want to know about you, the inner you, whatever that may be. Um, okay, um, a few more questions here because I'm monopolizing your day, your Friday. What advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the first time? So the, when I took over a new role, I would never make any changes for the first 30 days. Mm -hmm. I would sit there and... Uh, ask questions and observe and ask why do you do it this way and when I did that my first 30 days on Benfold the answer I kept getting was that's the way we've always done it and so the the overwhelming temptation for people when they go into a new, new role is to immediately change everything but you could rile up the organization you could break things that are already working with no understanding of what you're doing so the first role is to do no harm um, but then, you know, you just learn and you make notes and you ask questions. And I actually banned, that's the way we've always done it from the lips of my sailors. Because in that first 30 days, I heard it so often, it drove me nuts. And so changing that mindset is one of the things I realized I needed to work on. And that's why I started the interviews. And so from that learning process, I was able to come up with a roadmap of what I needed to do and what, what my priorities were. Mm -hmm. And another mistake is everybody wants to do everything all at the same time. And so I came up with my priorities during that first 30 days. And once we achieved one priority, then, then my next, uh, I didn't want to overwhelm the crew with, with all new changes. Right. And so it was a methodical implementation that didn't rile the crew up. Mm -hmm. You know, I just uh, I have one more question here for you, but I want to something just came to mind. Have you ever had an individual? I would think that someone in the Navy, maybe in this scenario, Mike, it's an officer who's trying to advance his career. And um, I assume not knowing too much about the military, uh, but having great respect for them, that you better your career in the military by uh, establishing a, a great sense of team. However, if someone's, have you ever been around someone who's really looking to advance their career as a leader, but they don't have a great sense of team and they don't understand what it's like in, at Anatomy I preach, the most important person in the room is not you, it's the other person. What are you doing to help others? Have you ever walked over to one of your teammates and said, what can I do to help you? And there's some people that have never said that. And I don't think they're bad people. And I don't think that they're not team players. I think that they don't, they've never been told that's something special. And that's something that will help the end goal, which is to be the best gym in the country, to be the best gym in the world. 
So the ranking process in the Navy is brutal. I had five departments on the ship, uh, each one headed up by a department head. And I've got to rank them one through five. And only the top one or two will ever get command of their own ship. And if you don't get command of your own ship, your career is effectively over. Mm -hmm. uh, you never get promoted again, and you're forced to leave the military. Wow. So the ranking system causes people to be hyper-competitive with their peers mm -hmm. to the point where they don't collaborate, and that attitude filters down to their departments where there's no collaboration among the, the departments. And after I saw my predecessor getting cheered off, um, I called my five department heads into my cabin. And this is one change I made right off the bat because I always hated it myself. I changed the way they were evaluated. And it used to be you were evaluated mostly on individual performance. I changed the rankings to rank you based on collaboration among your fellow department heads and how well you drive that down to the lowest level in your department. Genius. So collaboration became the number one criteria. And so now... Instead of you know undermining a fellow department head to make them look bad, they have to be seen to be collaborating together. And so that collaboration is what turned the ship around. Right. Now, if you want to know what my biggest mistake was, in two years, so I, Benfold was one ship of a 10-ship aircraft carrier battle group. And in two years, I didn't do one thing to help a fellow ship or a fellow ship captain. And if I had one thing to go back and do over again, it would be to figure out a way for the 10 ship captains to collaborate the way my five department heads did. Smart, yeah. And I give myself an F on collaboration at my level. And uh, that's the, the major mistake I made. And the Navy doesn't do a good job of that. Uh, I think they're getting better because I'm talking about it. Right. But corporations aren't doing that either. And so they, they need to understand that um, nobody can deliver excellence by themselves these days in, in corporate or in the military that that collaboration is one of the things they need to work on to, to improve. So is that the one thing that you would speak to that would improve the military in general? Collaboration? Better collaboration? More collaboration? More efficient collaboration? Or, so, or what is the one thing that would make the United States military better? Can you even say that? So um, I take these collisions personally because, like, take the uh, USS Fitzgerald, where seven sailors were killed. My cousin's grandson was on that ship and wasn't killed or injured, but was on the damage control team that kept the ship from sinking. Wow. And so I sit there and think about, you know, not one thing went wrong, a multitude of things went wrong that if just one of them hadn't gone wrong, the ship would have never had a collision. And like there were 15 watchstanders on watch that night. If just one had been doing their job differently or with a greater sense of urgency or a lack of complacency. And so what I fear that, um, and I haven't been in the Navy for 17 years, but I still talk to some people. There's um, a complacency that sets in that when it does, it can lead to, it could have disastrous consequences. And the leaders can never let that complacency set in um, because bad things happen. Right. And so you could have all the collaboration in the world, but if people become complacent and aren't forward thinking and doing what if scenarios, then these bad accidents are going to continue. So it, it's a tough situation. Um, and I'm not going to tell you that collaborate, collaboration wouldn't solve all that. Mm -hmm. it's, a, in, it's an individual sense of ownership and, um, and an, a culture where they're allowed to become complacent. And that's what I'd be focusing on right now. Right. Would you do anything differently if you could go back and start your pathway again in the United States military? I probably would have studied harder at the Naval Academy. I graduated in the top 80% of my class. I understood. Um, I wish I had become a better leader at a younger age. Can uh, you, though? Because you need the experience, right? So you have to be technically competent. But once you achieve that technical competence, 
it's about having the self-awareness to understand how you fit in. Self-awareness. Like when you play football, gift there are tremendously gifted athletes out there who, don't, who never fit in on a team. Right. And they can cause more problems than what they're worth. And so you, you have to develop your talents, but then have that self-awareness to understand how you can best fit in on the team right. to be the best. Understood. Understood. Okay, Mike, the last few things here are, it's, it's, it's kind of like a speed round of questions. You can use one word answers. You can have kind of uh, modified this uh, for yourself, but you give a few sentences. It's your choice. Okay. Your favorite part of the Navy. <laughs> I the, you, the people. The people. The, the sailors. Understood. Your favorite uh, Navy ritual? Um, cheeseburgers every Wednesday noon. Wednesday at noon? On every ship in the Navy, they have, they're called sliders. You have cheeseburgers every Wednesday noon. Nice. Are they unlimited or do you just get one? They're unlimited. Oh, they got to be unlimited. So that answers my next one, which is favorite food. Are your favorite... Uh, can I say port or country to visit? Australia. Australia. Why Australia? Because Australians love Americans and they love mm -hmm. American sailors. Mm -hmm. And the reception that we get there is just phenomenal. Okay. So I, I've been to uh, Perth, Melbourne, and Sydney. And I would say Sydney is my one of my favorite cities in the world. Understood. It's on my list. Certainly on my list. Is there one group... Is there another? Is there a group that gets more respect than United States Navy SEALs? So, I have all the respect in the world for Navy SEALs. They are the the elite okay. of the Navy, without a doubt. Okay. Top point zero zero one percent. Okay. They're physically gifted. They're motivated. They're driven, uh, and they're hand chosen for the missions um, within their group as well right yeah okay but they're also given all the resources they need to get the job done <laughs> understood and they do it extraordinarily well better than any other group in the world not all of us are navy seals <laughs> and i work with the bottom 99.99% who don't get the resources <laughs> who don't get the best personnel so sometimes that can be tougher than being a Navy SEAL. Okay. But it doesn't detract the tremendous amount of respect I have for Navy SEALs. And I think it's mutual that, that you have a tremendous amount of respect for them as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, all, all the Special Forces community, but the military but, in general. But yeah. I love the bottom 99.99%. Oh, yeah. They're definitely... Uh, they, you're, and you need respect. to love the bottom 99.9%. I do. They're the I, ones who come through your front door. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the SEALs don't come through your front door. That's right. Uh, okay. Uh, is there a favorite Navy? I, I don't know. I have no idea, Mike. Restaurant or hangout that's legendary within the Navy community? The the only thing I can think of is the Officers Club at Miramar uh, oh, Air okay. Station. Oh, and wow. That's where Top, Top Gun, Gun was filmed. Top Gun. Now, is it famous because of the movie or was it famous before the movie? So at the, today it's a Marine Corps Air Station. Back then, it was an F-14 air station. In the movie, it was F-16s, right? F-14s. It was in the movie? F-16s are Air Force. F-14s oh, okay. are Navy. Oh, okay. I, st I stand corrected. But we've decommissioned all the F-14s and okay. we're now flying F-18s. But back in the day, it was a place where there was all the swagger. Right, right, right. You know, ship drivers, There's we don't have any swagger. You know, we, <laughs> We work 100 hours a week. Right. We have dark circles under our eyes. Right. You're, the you're, aviators you're, are out there having fun and flying their hot machines. You're like the Bill Belichick assistant coaches of the Navy. That's right. why they look like they're serving a tour in Afghanistan. They exactly. don't sleep, right? Exactly. Would you chalk up the Top Gun movie as the single greatest um, advertisement for joining the Navy? Absolutely. Genius, right? Mm -hmm. How many pilots came out of that era? I have no idea, but uh, it inspired a lot of people. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, favorite pastime? That's a tough question. <laughs> These are all tough questions. Okay. So I love sitting in my backyard looking at the water. Mike has an amazing backyard. So there's something about water that has always uh, been calming to me. 
And I think I first noticed it when I went to the Naval Academy. It's on the Severn River in the mm-hmm. Chesapeake. I, I watched every sunset and every sunrise in command of the ship uh, from my bridgewing chair. And to me, there's nothing more calming than looking at water. And I sit out on my deck every night watching sunset here. Yeah, can you miss it? Some great ones here. It's beautiful. And you have a lifeguard tower in your backyard. It's one of the three original lifeguard stations in Miami Beach. And the city auctioned it off last year. I won it for $600. $600, that's a steal. Um, it's cost me like 20 <laughs> times that to get it in place and to make it functional. It's pretty <laughs> incredible looking in your backyard. But um, I may be the only house in all of Miami Beach that has an original lifeguard station. In I have no doubt. No doubt. And don't expect to have a lifeguard on duty there because most nights there's a lot of drinking going on and nobody could uh, uh, pull anybody out of the water at that point. I don't know anything and not knowing too much, but I will tell you that this looks like the setting for a lot of major shindigs back here. There have been a lot of parties. (laughs) I'm sure. That's correct. Okay. Do you have a favorite sports team? Aside from uh, the Naval uh, Midshipman football team. Uh, Penn State Nittany Lions. Penn State, okay. Favorite athlete? Do you have a past and a current or one or the other? So um, my mother used to have my photo on her desk at home. She's 95 going on 96. And six years ago, I arranged for her to go to a charity fundraiser where Franco Harris was the headliner. Wow. And she got her photo taken with Franco Harris. And the next time I go home, my photo is nowhere to be found. It's her and Franco Harris on her desk. So it's Legend. a tough, tough family. Franco Harris is probably one of the greatest. Awesome. Great team. Great era. Favorite Navy military movie of all time? It could be Navy movie or military movie of all time. Man. I have another question you for you. You should have given this. me a heads up on these. I know. I should have. But it's more fun when you struggle. I'm struggling. <laughs> My next question is how accurate Crimson Tide is. Oh, Crimson Tide isn't accurate at all. Not at all. But It was great to watch, though. So um, it didn't even have come close to the, secu- the controls that are in place for the nuclear codes. Okay. So um, there are two separate chains of command uh, on, the sh- on a sub or our ships don't carry nuclear weapons anymore. Um, and so the CO couldn't order the release of nuclear weapons. Only two different specially trained groups of people who control the codes. And they have nothing to do with each other, and they can't launch without the other person. So it's two—it's probably the most um, stringent procedures, as you would hope, Okay. And so Crimson Tide didn't even right. come close, close to it. Okay. Thank God they had Gene Hackman and uh, yeah, he Denzel. Did. He's one of the yeah, one of the greatest. Okay. Last, other than your book, which once again, it's your ship. Go out, grab it. An amazing book. What was? What's your favorite book or last book read that's notable? The Seals do have some good books out. Um, Jock. Jocko Willick. Jocko Willick has a great book, Extreme yeah, Ownership. Great book. But I will say that um, It's Your Ship came out in 2002. <laughs> and it was one of the first books to talk about ownership and personal responsibility. And it spawned a whole genre of, uh, of which Jocko Willick's book is, is a great book. I'm sure you gave him the idea. What? And I'm just going to say that because I know you don't want to say that or wouldn't say that. Your book was a bestseller, correct? It's made the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times bestseller list. Okay. Okay. But Jocko's has made it more than mine. Not that I track it. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Favorite quote? It could be a Navy quote. So, um, Theodore Roosevelt. And I can't, I used to be, I used to know it by heart. The critic that counts? It's not the critic that counts. It's the doer of deeds. That's the man right. who gets in the arena gets bloodied day after day. And it's not the cold, timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. That's a great quote. 
That's a great quote. I've seen that in many shirts, many locker room uh, uh, walls. Last one, Mike, and you're off the hook. Your uh, mentor in life or mentor in the Navy or both? William Perry. He was the 19th Secretary of Defense, uh, and he chose me to be his uh, junior military assistant. Within two months of hiring me, he hired another guy by the name of Ash Carter, who went on to become Secretary of Defense, and he hired another guy by the name of Colonel James Mattis. Wow. So I'm the failure of the three of us. Yeah, right. Um, It's a great company. William Perry should be the head of HR for many organizations. He's 91 next week. And uh, I had dinner with him two weeks ago, but he's got a knack for, I was, so they interviewed 12 people for my job and I wasn't the smartest, nor did I have the best record. And it took me a year to ask him why he hired me. And he said that he didn't, that his staff did, that out of the 12 candidates, I was the only one who talked to the rest of the staff as if they were people and how, if I got selected, how I was, how I was going to support them so that they could support him better. And he said, when I asked the staff who they wanted to work with, they said they wanted to work with me. Wow. So in my speeches, what I ask people, are you the captain that your crew would choose to lead them? And I'm not talking about, you know, being liked. I'm talking about being respected and, and mm-hmm. looking out for them. I understood. Mike, I can't thank you so much enough for being on the show, man. This is incredible. I have a thousand more questions, but I don't think it's fair to... Uh, monopolize your day maybe we'll have you on one more time and uh, we'll talk about uh, world uh, events but thank you very very much I know that everyone uh, within our community over here is going to listen to the podcast Mike can you uh, tell us how to get in touch with you if someone wants to reach out to you for a speech speaking engagement Mike at MikeAbershoff.com M-I-K-E-A-B-R-A-S-H-O-F-F.com and the book is it's your ship. You got to check it out. I mean, this is a great book, and I've had pe- people reaching out to me on social media because I put a little uh, uh, subject head or uh, sentence or maybe the chapter every morning, and people ask me all the time, what book is that? How could I pick it up, Mark? So you'll have a few more buyers out there. But, Michael, thank you so much, very much. I appreciate it. You got it, Mark. Thank you. Thanks.